are places on this earth where life ceases to exist, for one reason or another. Some have been rendered uninhabitable by pollution, others by the sheer harshness of the conditions. And yet there are places on earth that have been made uninhabitable by something from beyond the stars. Today we shall make known one such stretch of land, a place poisoned by an unknown celestial force. Broadcasting on WCRX 88.1 FM, directly from Chicago's underground, I am Peyton Zignego with Channel Veil, pulling back that which divides the known from the unknown. How can we describe the indescribable? Foolish question, naturally, and perhaps some things are better left unknowable. After all, how are we to read the handwriting on the wall if it's written in a language that we cannot understand? Are the consequences of that which we never comprehend rightfully ours to deal with? Uh, okay, okay, I'm overburdening with queries, I, I recognize that. Nadia made a comment to me that I apparently enjoy questions far too much, which I found comical coming from my field reporter whose job it is to ask questions. And now I'm rambling on air. Okay. In any case, I'll take us now into our present topic of discussion, the assembled story of Arkham's fabled Blasted Heath, an expanse in the outskirts of Arkham, Massachusetts, where nothing grows. What was once a prosperous area of farmlands now stands grayed and withered. A seasonal coating of dust refuses to blow in any wind and sits heavy on the land and in the hearts of those who bore witness to the foul ending of the gardeners. This is our Blasted Heath a scar upon the earth for a tale no one wishes to tell. The Gardners were a family of farmers out in the countryside in Arkham. Mr. and Mrs. Gardner had three sons, Zenas, Thaddeus, and Merwin Gardner. As far as we can find, they were respected members of their community up until the events we've come to recount. A large orchard of pears and apples grew on their farmland, and several livestock animals populated their meadows and pastures. The fate that befell them came out of a sound in the night, and what the town assumed would simply be a strange happening of the heavens. But I, I get ahead of myself, and of course, strange fates and condemnation is what we're all about. Otherwise, we'd have nothing to research and report. But let me start us at the beginning. It was June last year when the sounds of an explosion rang out across the quiet woods of small New England town Arkham. Local farmer, Nahum Gardner, reported to the town that a rock had fallen from the sky and landed on his property. That explosion's echoes sang a forewarning no one could comprehend. Only from the clear view of the past can we note this as the omen it was. We obtained records from the Miskatonic University professors who were part of the initial investigation team. According to them, the soft piece of the sky refused to cool, remaining hot to the touch even after settling in the chilled earth. When they removed a section for study, they ran just about every test I can imagine to seemingly no use. Not that I fully understand exactly what they were meaning when they write these things. Scientist types make their work so above me. <laughs> I'll make a note to send these to the one member of our reporting team who took advanced chemistry. What I can understand is this hunk of space rock shown with colors no one can describe. Something a mantis shrimp could only see, I imagine. Then, just like that, the specimen disappeared in the night, taking the glass beaker with it. Whether or not scientific specimens are prone to doing so, I'm not sure. In the same fashion, the entire shrinking meteor was gone after a thunderstorm, in which it reportedly acted like a lightning rod, drawing heavenly fire. Nothing was left behind but a hole in the ground. 
There's a smattering of local paper reports from this time, just recounting what they thought was a one-and-done event. It wasn't even on our radar at that time. Nadia rolled her eyes at me when I brought it up, hence why she's now the field reporter on the task for this one. That and, well, she's my only field reporter. As far as field reporting goes, so far she's found absolutely no one willing to speak with her. Shouldn't come as a surprise to me, however, as even finding information about anything surrounding the gardeners in Arkham has proven incredibly difficult. I told her to dig until she could force a microphone in front of someone, so we'll see how that goes. While we wait for an update from Nadia, the story widens its maw for us further. Despite the gardeners seemingly bringing in a large crop that season, everything was inedible, tasting sour and off. Then, further strange, when snow came that winter, it was thinner around their farm. This was the first time reports came in about animals being twisted and broken from their natural forms, instead displaying grotesque mutations. But only when found around the gardener farm. When illuminated by the moonlight above, flora and fauna bent in strange ways, taking leaps further and more jagged than seen before. There are few descriptions of what was seen, only whispers of things seeming diseased and broken from their natural shape, and always glistening with a color that no one can name. In our digging, which was more so creating a shallow grave than a true archaeological dig site, we found two articles from their gazette that reported related to the gardeners and their trouble, both from spring a year following the initial meteor event. One was written with a sort of mocking, recounting how Mr. Gardner had come to their editor and waved blossoms of one of his plants in his face. Not the method of breaking a story we usually recommend to editor types. We had an intern one season who tried a similar method when she wanted to break a story about something with bird feathers, and that went about as well. Anyway, the second article was from a few months later and wasn't a cry of help from Mr. Gardner. Instead, this second article was from the account of a salesman passing through the countryside who happened upon the Gardner farm. It was only about a paragraph long, but was one of the first truly outside accounts of the developing incident that we could find at this point in the timeline. However short the article may be, it describes the state of the farm in such a way that cannot be ignored. Insects swarmed the farm, which took on a sickly luminescence in the night, betraying the moonlight. A horrid symphony of buzzing and crawling echoed through the farmlands and trees. To mention the trees, they were not untouched. Their growth was altered, making shapes that seemed to churn the stomachs of those that laid eyes upon them. And further still, they refused to sit motionless. Even when no wind was present, a constant state of swaying and swarming, backed by a nauseating glow. It was in this miasma of disease that the first victim of this incident began to be claimed. Mrs. Gardner lost herself to madness near the anniversary of the meteor's arrival. Mrs. Gardner began to rave about, shouting of things that made sense only to her. Her husband allegedly took care of her until she became of detriment to their children, in which case he moved her to the attic. I can't necessarily agree with that action, but I wasn't there to stop him, of course. When the cool wind of autumnal change came, the illusion of farmland wealth shattered for good. Reports now state that whatever grew on the stretches of land that the gardeners had began to turn gray and wither, not unlike what we still see today. Then Madness claimed another victim. This time it was Thaddeus, the middle child of the gardeners. 
He whispered of colors down there and little else. Thaddeus also ended up in the attic, across from his mother, when he kept accidentally injuring himself in a stupor. And of course, we now note the resurgence of that gray sickness, this time affecting the livestock of the farm. An Arkham veterinarian made claims that this must be the result of disease, but no natural disease could cause what they saw. It was as if decay came early to living creatures, making their bodies cave and distort where they stood until they grew too brittle to stand any longer and... Uh, uh, what? What in the- oh, oh, a call from Nadia. Uh, hang on here. Um, this could be breaking story news from field reporter Nadia. One moment while I take this call, uh, of course. <laughs> I'm Peyton with WCRX 88.1 FM, broadcasting directly from underground Chicago, saying Channel Vale will be back momentarily. WCRX 88.1 FM with Channel Vale. This is Peyton, back here with a fresh update from field reporter Nadia out in Arkham, Massachusetts. According to her, she's found the one Arkham citizen willing to speak of the strange days, as they've called it. Amy Pierce lives near the present Blasted Heath and past Gardner Farm. Although he seems mostly willing to speak with Nadia to some degree, she reports that he seems slightly off. However, given that we can only get one witness to speak with us, I suppose we'll take it. She did report to me that in order to get him to speak with us, she had to pound upon his door, so this may be her fault as well. But journalism is what we make of it, after all. Mr. Pierce claims that he was the only member of the community who was willing to interact with the gardeners during their fated downfall in the year after the anniversary of the meteor's arrival. He believed that part of their issues stemmed from the well on their property, of which the water tasted wrong. This warning was not heeded, despite the soundness on which it was founded. Pierce recalls the death of Thaddeus happening on the 19th of October. Mr. Gardner had come to his house to share the news and asked that he come back with him to help comfort the young Merwin. Pierce had been able to muster the courage to stay in that house until nightfall, when he refused to watch the ways the land illuminated itself in the night. Three days later, Mr. Gardner returned to the doorstep of the Pierce household to share that Merwin had gone missing while getting water from that accursed well, leaving nothing behind but his lantern and pail, which had been horribly fused together in ways impossible considering the circumstances. Then, two weeks of nothing. Nadia reports that Pierce was worried, but his deep instinctual fear of their place kept him away for so long. When he finally did manage to make his way over, he found no visible signs of life until he found Mr. Gardner hanging on to his own life in his living room, alone. He too had begun to let his sanity slip as he called for his eldest son, but then stated the boy lived in the well. He too had gone missing. Only the parents remained now, which begs the question of Mrs. Gardner, who was up until this point seldom mentioned. As it would happen, Mr. Pierce ascended the stairs to find what had happened to her alone in the attic while her husband raved below. Unseen in the heights of the unlit attic, Pierce beheld her. Moving and crumbling all at once with the colors and their deep, awakening horror surrounding her, she sat in the enveloping darkness. Her vestige was morbidly distorted as she succumbed to the same unnamed sickness that took the livestock earlier that year. Nadia shared that his gaze grew distant as he spoke of Mrs. Gardner. She could almost hear the echoes of memory reverberating 
as he recalled the dastardly events. She declined to press further, but I suppose it's clear that she does not reappear as a living subject in the interview. All he said with any semblance of certainty was that he locked the door behind him as he left the room for a final time. I will make a note that with the knowledge of the final moments that the livestock experienced, whatever he did was done with a cruel sort of mercy in mind. Regardless, there was still one living gardener who could at least be considered still untouched physically. At least it seemed. As Mr. Pierce stood on the dark stairs with his back to the locked door and facing the abyssal downstairs, he heard the sickly sounds of something dragging itself across the old farmhouse floorboards. When he made his way downstairs, he was met with what was no longer recognizable as Mr. Gardner. As with every previous member of his family, he had begun to turn gray and disintegrate, falling victim to the sickness. Brittle and gray as he was, he still spoke, making his final words a feeble attempt to explain what happened. In a final moment of what could be considered some degree of clarity, the thing that was no longer Mr. Gardner blamed the color coming out of the well, the color that shone on the plants and stained the water, the color that reflected off the meteorite samples, and the same color that his entire property would glow at night. That had taken his family and drained the life from his property. And so then, as it would happen, Mr. Pierce would watch the final gardener take his last breath. Or, I suppose, the shambling, decaying mess lost its ability to breathe as it collapsed in on itself with a final shudder. Mr. Pierce was the one who reported the gardener deaths to town officials. He was also the one who led a team of six others back up to the farm. Three officers, the coroner, the medical examiner, and the veterinarian. All of which declined to make a statement to us, might I add. We hounded who we could find, but no one was willing to break some vow of silence. But at least we got Mr. Pierce, that's much better than nothing. I'm not ungrateful of our key witness interviewee. But no one from that investigation party was left undisturbed by what they saw. Mr. Pierce even went so far as to describe the remains of Mr. and Mrs. Gardner as crumpling objects. I can only assume that it was quite the grisly sight. There is one more Miskatonic University report from these events. The medical examiner sent vials of dust from the corpses of the gardeners. Unsurprisingly, that same spectrum of colors radiated off of those samples, just as it had the original samples of the meteor. I'd also like to mention that we did try to track down the professors who made these discoveries and wrote the reports that I'm reading from, but they all passed away. No one who touched those reports is still around to make sense of all their jargon. I really need to hire an actual accredited scientist to look these over. But I don't need a scientific degree to share with confidence that it made sense that the investigation party's natural next step was to check that accursed well. They had to empty the water bucket after bucket by hand to find nothing but death, as they had expected but hoped would not. The two missing gardener boys, Merwin and Zenas, were nothing but gray and brittle skeletons in a horrid ooze at the bottom of the well. As night fell and they made their way back into the farmhouse, not one member of the party could discern with any probable cause what had happened here. What could affect the land and its inhabitants in such a similar manner? They agreed the meteor had poisoned the land to some degree, but to cause all this, nothing seemed to make sense. It still seems that way. They debated and discussed until night settled itself around them, and they discovered that a sickly light was shining from the well. 
It was Mr. Pierce that instantly recognized it as the same hue that haunted the land and poisoned his neighbors. Horror-stricken, they watched as the light grew stronger and more distorted. Then the natural landscape began to twist and disfigure itself. The trees were bending to the will of that sickly color, despite no wind blowing. The reports from Mr. Gardner that had been previously openly mocked were proving to be true. Each person stood in their own frozen terror as the landscape itself twitched and spasmed, breathless and unwilling to look away for fear they'd be next rendered gray and brittle as everything else. When dark clouds came and blocked even the moonlight, they came to realize that everything was glowing, faintly but enough to know they were surrounded by that color and its reaches. The well's nightmarish spotlight grew in intensity, enough that the veterinarian placed a block on the front door to the farmhouse they were cowering in. Escaping light and color from the well began to weave itself into shapes in the air, threatening to overtake everything living on that farm as it had done with everything else. Mr. Pierce saved the lives of the investigation team, guiding them out of the back door of the house, away from the well and its outpouring of growing light. When they had made it to a safe enough distance away, they turned back to watch the horrid finale that perhaps would have claimed their lives had they stayed at Ground Zero. That abhorrent spotlight shot itself up from the well into the sky, breaking the barrier of clouds and nearly blinding the onlookers. The eruption of colors no man was meant to see nor comprehend grew in intensity, making its final gruesome stand. It tore through the sky until just as suddenly as it had landed here those two years ago, it was gone. Nothing was left but the wind whipping around the watchers as they were left in bewilderment. Nadia said Pierce was silent for a moment, deep in recall. He swears in his final words to Nadia that something was still down there. Some part of that horrible color was still in the well, surrounded by desolation. Five acres of land left uninhabitable. I'll bring this to a conclusion with Nadia when we return. For WCRX 88.1 FM, this is Channel Vale. Welcome back to WCRX 88.1 FM, Underground Chicago with Channel Vale. After our field reporter Nadia and Mr. Pierce parted ways, Nadia shared she didn't think she'd like to return to Arkham. I couldn't say that I blamed her. The descriptions of the blasted heath and its slowly creeping grayness, the remains of the blight which took an entire family. In the wake of the events at Arkham, many moved away and the town's population has dwindled significantly. Though despite this, both past and present residents refuse to speak on the subject which draws them away. Even with a second round of asking for anyone to talk to her, Nadia got nothing but a bountiful harvest of no's. I suppose if I was in their shoes and someone came, kicking up settled gray dirt, I would be hesitant to relive those memories again with them. We here at Channel Vale would like to again thank Mr. Pierce for his side of the story. We were able to corroborate his statement with what documents were left behind, and it all seems to line up, though still no answers are clear. The Gardner farmlands are still barren, despite the surrounding forest being lush and grown in. That area of land is constantly looking as though it was just visited by wildfire. Wind doesn't disturb the settled dust of all that brittle gray plant matter, and it seems that occasional reports still come in of creatures in that area looking not quite as they're meant to. Nadia refused to enter the area after hearing what Mr. Pierce had to say. I couldn't force her, even if I wanted to. Whatever evil still lingers there will not be taking my only field reporter today. 
However, there is hope that the area will return to have some semblance of normalcy soon with plans to take the former gardener farm and create a reservoir. Mr. Pierce said he was glad to hear it. Perhaps only with the drowning of that land will the area find some peace. The lingering of their so-called reminder of strange days will cease to be. However, that reservoir is not made to commemorate the life and death of Arkham and the gardeners, but to finally bury their lasting reminder. Perhaps it's best to leave that water untouched. The meteor and its color came and left nothing behind, draining the life from Arkham just as it did the gardeners. It's likely we'll never have proper answers as to what happened. There is little speculation we can do, as so much seems so disjointed from what we know is reality. However, I'd be remiss to leave out that we here at Channel Vale are only interested in what happens in those moments where it seems all laws of reality have been rendered useless. There are things we will never comprehend, but were we ever meant to? I'll leave you with that question to ponder. We shall see what laws of reality are broken when we return next week. Whatever we cover, I think I shall have to promise Nadia that she will not be sent off to some woodlands to fear for her life. Though I'm not sure what she was expecting when she applied for this job, given the fact that all we deal with is the supernatural and cosmically horrible. Come to think of it, I have to wonder if she ever read her job description at all. Huh. In either case, I shall speak with you again next week. Broadcasting as always, from Chicago's underground, this has been Channel Vale. Today's newscast was brought to you by WCRX 88.1 FM and HP Lovecrafts The Color Out of Space. I've been Peyton Zignego. Thank you for listening. <laughs>